This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from history to business, and of course, military stories and love stories, and even stories about death, personal struggle. You name it, we tell the story, and send your stories to us at Our American Network, because you and your stories are the hour in Our American Stories, and we produce them often here on this show. And by the way, we'd love to hear your stories about landmarks in your town. That's favorite restaurants, joints, bars, places to go see a band, a place in a park, whatever. Send those stories of your favorite landmarks to ouramericannetwork.org. And Pink's Hot Dogs is a landmark hot dog restaurant in Los Angeles. Richard Pink is the owner. And we love to hear from small and big business owners alike here on Our American Stories and the story of Pink's Hot Dogs. Well, it's as American as it gets. Pink's Hot Dogs was established in 1939 by Paul and Betty Pink. It was established with just a little push cart. And my parents were out of work at the time, and they were looking for employment, and they ran across an ad for a push cart. And it cost $50. And my parents did not even have the $50, and they had to borrow it from my grandmother. And the push cart was available about two miles away from here, and my mother went down to where it was located and wheeled it all the way up Melrose Avenue and put it right here on the site of La Brea and Melrose. And she rented that site for $15 a month at that time. And it was the hot dogs were 10 cents and Cokes were a nickel. And believe it or not, there wasn't even electricity on the site. And they had to buy about a 100-yard extension cord to plug into a neighboring hardware store. And that's how they fired up Pink's in 1939. And for the next two years, they just had the hot dog cart. And then in 41, they built a smaller version of the building that you see today. And then in 1946, the very hot dog stand you see is what it looked like back then. And we haven't changed a thing since then. My parents had curbside service and people would drive up and park and they would bring them out a hot dog and a Coke and that's how it was back then. It's the entertainment capital of the world. And we've got Paramount Studios, 20th Century Fox, Universal Studios. They're all in and around here and all the production offices are here. And so when celebrities came out from whatever city they were from in order to get discovered, they didn't have any money at the time and they could afford a hot dog. And then they started putting their pictures up on our wall. Now, today, we have over 200 celebrities on our wall. But in those days, they put their pictures up there because they were hoping that some of the directors and producers would discover them. They came in for a hot dog, and then, you know, they would get discovered. We've got the Ozzy Osbourne dog, Rosie O'Donnell. We got Martha Stewart. Martha Stewart actually waited in line here for about 45 minutes and created her own hot dog. And, you know, we've got a number of celebrities that have come in, but also the, the movie Mulholland Drive was filmed here, so we got a Mulholland Drive dog. We've got a Harry Potter dog. we got a Lord of the Rings dog. I mean, we got a lot of exciting hot dogs. It turned out people tended to want to order a hot dog by name rather than just a chili cheese dog. They wanted to have a name attached to it. But the chili cheese dog, that's what made us famous. People are always looking for new, something new to market their, their property, uh, whether it's an amusement park or the, even the airport for that matter. And so they came to us and they said, look, you're world famous and we really need something that's very special, very unique. 
And that's how really we came to Cedar Point. They had tried us out at Knott's Berry Farm, which is probably the most famous amusement park in all of Southern California, maybe all of California. And then the owners of Knott's Berry Farm said, you know, you're selling so well, I know you're going to do well at Cedar Point back in Ohio. So we'd love you to come back here. We want to bring your brand. We want to bring the concept, the image, the whole celebrity connection back to Ohio. And we said, fine, because we really like the way you operate pinks over at Knott's Berry Farm. I understand that we sell more hot dogs in California than New York and Chicago, believe it or not, maybe because of our weather, okay? And a lot of people, you know, bring hot dogs to picnics throughout the year and so forth. But in terms of pinks, I mean, we're on the cable channel, we're on the food network, we're on the travel channel and all that. That has put out the word so whenever you come to Los Angeles, you want a great hot dog. And I think every bit is good and probably even better. I'll challenge New York, I'll challenge Chicago, that our hot dogs are even better. And that's what those people that come in from those cities tell us. Pink's is at the corner of La Brea and Melrose in Hollywood. We are open from 9.30 in the morning until 2 a.m. every day, except on the weekends, 3 a.m., and in the summers to 4 a.m. It's the place you come after you've spent the evening at a club, and, you, and Pink's is a party. Yes, it's very delicious. Um, I got the spicy Polish dog. It's really, really good, but really spicy. <laughs> and uh, I got the same thing, and again, it's spicy, but it's, it's really good. It's... Probably one of the best hot dogs I've ever had. I think it was called a stretch uh, hot dog with chili. And uh, I thought both the meat and the bun were just out of this world. I, I would say it's the best hot dog I've ever had in my life. And nothing is close to it. Come all the time. We live here. Uh, so I go by uh, from my house to my office. I go by here uh, twice a day. Um, I ordered a chili cheese dog, and it was really good. I liked it a lot. It was very good. I liked it. Yeah. And they are all right, by the way. Mine's the Brando dog. Try it sometime. If you're ever in La Brea and Melrose in L.A., this is the place to go. Best to go late night. It's even tastier. No one knows why. This is science, folks. It's not my opinion. It's a proven fact. But I've had pinks as early as 10 a.m. It does not get better. And uh, by the way, Mark's Hot Dog in Bergenfield, New Jersey, a close runner-up, the world's best onion sauce. But if you like a chili cheese dog, the buns are perfect, the chili's perfect. I'm getting hungry just talking about it. Again, if you have a place, a landmark, a favorite joint, tell us about it. Just go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. This is Lee Habib, Pink's Hot Dogs, their story here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for another installment in our series, Energy is Life, where we explore the role of energy in all of our lives. We use it almost every minute of every day, from cooking, heating, and cooling houses, powering our devices, to our transportation. Energy is an essential part of our daily living, and it always has been. Today's episode is a messy one and brought to us by our very own Joey Cortez. We often romanticize the past. We think of times with elegant parties, riding in the back of elegant chariots, drawn by big, beautiful horses, wishing we could live in another century. But with all the advances of today, would you really want to live during another time? especially before the automobile became the primary mode of transportation. Here's Martin Melosi, an expert in the history of urban development. One of the major modes of transportation in the city were horses. And in the late 19th century, for example, in the city of Chicago, there were stables holding probably 86,000 horses that were used for you know, all kinds of transportation and drayage and so forth, and, and large, large numbers of horses in cities like New York as well. By 1880, there were at least 150,000 horses in New York City. During that time, that's enough horses to populate their own city of horses. You might be thinking, how cool, I love horses. But how do you feel about their manure? Oftentimes, a lot of the the waste and manure was kind of left on the streets. Oftentimes, the quality of street cleaning diminished as you moved away from the central business district and into more modest neighborhoods. And there, there were class and racial distinctions that determined who got what service when. And certainly when the the horse mover or the remnants of the horse mover that wasn't picked up remained on the street, then it turned into, you know, fine, fine dust. Here's the former vice president and director of the New York Historical Society Library, Gene Ashton, on what it was like to live in New York City before the automobile. The enormous amount of dust that would be flying through the air, you know, an urban pollutant because manure would then dry up and be blown all over the place. You would see wet, stinking pools on the street. So you would walk, you would see, you know, dirt channeling down the middle of the street, sewage. Women with long skirts didn't walk on the sidewalk very much. Broadway was the the most popular street in the city, but people tended to walk on the west side of Broadway because it wasn't hit by the noonday sun so that the smells were not as bad uh, and the the, the things were were not as as heated up. you, You can imagine these filthy streets in a July day with the sun beating down. There are places in New York where you could, you could see four feet of waste in the street. You couldn't even look from one side of the street to the other because the waste was compacted so much on the street level. So in many cases, the streets were not easily utilized because uh, they, they were not being taken care of. 
At first, they tried to collect the horse manure and sell it to farmers in the surrounding countryside to use as compost or fertilizer for their fields. But that only worked for a few decades. The streets were simply filthy. And after a while, after the Civil War, when the city grew exponentially, they couldn't collect this and sell it as, as fertilizer anymore very effectively because people were throwing so much other kinds of trash in it. It was filled with other kinds of garbage, not only human feces and horse feces, but also paper and eggshells and rinds of food. So it mixed in with the horse manure and they couldn't really sell it as fertilizer very effectively anymore. And if you think that's bad, this might be worse. There are pictures available of horses, the corpses of horses lying along the edge of the street. I'm sure nobody wanted this to happen, but, you know, it was just what they did. It was not responsible behavior, but people didn't want to pay for having the horse towed away. There was no municipal government sanitation department until really late in the 19th century. The health question, again, keep in mind that it's not really until the turn of the century that we have an understanding of bacteriology. It's 1880 when Louis Pasteur and Robert Koch first made us aware of it. So most everyone until that time believed that disease was generated by smells or what we call miasmas, that is the decaying material that generated smells, these discolorations, these are things that produced disease. And the idea was that the horse manure, of course, if left alone, was going to create you know, more health problems than not. So the basic dependence on what was called environmental sanitation did have a salutary effect. There was a correlation between removing the waste from human senses and the reduction in some kinds of diseases, especially diarrheal diseases and things of that kind. But the reality is it did not get to the causes because people didn't understand what caused disease. So the manure that attracted rodents or attracted mosquitoes and flies and so forth might be carriers, but people saw this as really uh, from a, a sensory point of view, what smelled bad and what looked bad. People were aware of this problem way back. By the 1840s or 50s, people were complaining they've got to do something about the horses in the city. But it wasn't until maybe the 1880s that, that people really began to uh, look at other modes of transportation that didn't create mounds of horse manure and smells and flies and, um, and dead animals. In the late 19th century, then public health officials and sanitarians were kind of the primary people in the cities that were responsible for the health of the city. Uh, what happens when bacteriology becomes more prevalent is that the status of public health diminishes as individual medicine increases in value, so MDs become more important in dealing with disease. And in some ways, this happens in New York, the responsibility for getting rid of the waste and dealing with it as a health issue falls on engineers more than it falls on public health officials. And so engineers got to work. By the 1840s and 50s, cities like New York and Boston introduced a horse-powered streetcar on rails that carried upwards to 40 people. Then came elevated trains that ran through cities, followed by electric trolleys. But what would ultimately solve the problem was the automobile, 
which wasn't an overnight transition. Even after the automobile became more popular, horses were still being used in reasonably large numbers in most of the major cities. The, in the transition period, people were kind of holding on to the resources that the horses represented. And so what, what happens is that you have tremendous competition for the use of the streets. So you have horses, you have streetcars, you have automobiles, and pedestrians all competing for the use of those streets. And then Henry Ford made them really affordable for people instead of a luxury, and that was in the teens of the century when Ford developed the Model T and the assembly line. So by 1920, it was pretty common, and you know, horses were old-fashioned. And who knows? The cars of today might be old-fashioned before we know it. Throughout history, it's innovations in energy like this that make our society cleaner, more efficient, and more affordable. So the next time you walk down a sidewalk on your city streets without having to worry about contracting a disease from stepping in puddles and streams of manure after a heavy rain, or breathing in manure dust after a hot day, ask yourself, would I really want to live in a time before the automobile? For Our American Stories, I'm Joey Cortez. And great work on that story by Joey Cortez and Tumanti Montgomery, who aided on the research and production on the episode. And it is unimaginable to think about what life would have been like with just horses and dirt and all of the smells, the airborne diseases. And if it weren't for our moving assembly lines and the power that powered them, and of course, the energy it took to power those cars, which of course was oil, My goodness, well, what an improvement in the quality of life for every American, these great inventions and innovations. And we're going to continue our Energy is Life storytelling with many more stories along the way. And by the way, we urge everyone to go to our hour-long stories on Henry Ford and the moving assembly line and the remarkable life that Ford led, the remarkable contribution. He lowered the price of cars as we heard from one historian, and made them available to everybody. And only commerce, American commerce, could have managed that. And also the story of Rockefeller, who lowered the price of energy and fuel and oil for all of us in this great country. Energy is Life, the series, The Unthinkable Life Before Automobiles. That story here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and you're listening to the Soggy Bottom Boys and their rendition of Man of Constant Sorrow from the O Brother Where Art Thou soundtrack. And it's a great soundtrack, a great movie, a funny movie, one of my favorite Coen Brothers movies. And now it's time for our Story of the Song segment. We love this segment. We've done a whole bunch. You can go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and listen to them all. Jesus Take the Wheel, Georgia on My Mind, 
Another Brick in the Wall, Part 2, Riders on the Storm with Ray Manzarek. It's a tutorial, and it's just superb. And last but not least, I think everyone's favorite here, if you haven't heard it, the story of the making of Gimme Shelter, and particularly the haunting background vocals by Mary Clayton. It's terrific, and you'll love it. That's ouramericannetwork.org, story of a song. In the opening scene of this great movie that we were just talking about, we see the Soggy Bottom Boys escaping a prison chain gang across a cornfield in the sweltering southern heat. As the credits roll, an old song begins to play with lyrics full of silliness and fantasy. Here's Jesse with the story of a song in Big Rock, Candy Mountain. Big Rock Candy Mountain, first recorded by Harry McClintock in 1928, is a folk song about a hobo's idea of paradise. And he wrote it for an album titled Hallelujah, I'm a Bum. Also known as Haywire Mac, McClintock was a singer-songwriter and poet born in Knoxville, Tennessee in 1882. His drifting began when he ran away from home as a boy to join the circus. He railroaded in Africa, worked as a seaman, saw action in the Philippines as a civilian mule train packer, supplying American troops with food and ammunition, and in 1899 found himself in China as an aide to a newsman covering the Boxer Rebellion. Back in the States, he hired out to the Pittsburgh, Fort Wayne, and Chicago Railway in the Pittsburgh area, and from there he took the Boomer Trail as a railroader and minstrel. Mac lived an adventurous life and never lost his sense of humor. His song Big Rock Candy Mountain in 1928, much later featured in the 2000 movie Old Brother or Art Thou, reached number one on Billboard's Hillbilly Hits chart in 1939. Who knew there was such a thing? Having worked as a cowboy himself, McClintock was one of the few country singers who had an authentic background from which to draw. One evening as the sun went down and the jungle fire was burning, down the track came a hobo hiking, and he said, boys, I'm not turning, I'm headed for a land that's far away, beside the crystal fountains, so come with me, we'll go and see the big rock candy mountain. It's a place where hens lay soft-boiled eggs, and there are cigarette trees around every corner. Before recording the song, McClintock cleaned it up considerably from the version that he sang as a street busker in the 1890s. Originally, the song described a child being recruited into the hobo life. I've hiked and hiked until my feet are sore, and I'll be damned if I hike anymore. To be buggered sore like a hobo's whore in the Big Rock Candy Mountains. Those lyrics were not in the released version. And the song wasn't even popularized until 1939, when it peaked at number one on the Billboard magazine's country music charts. But it achieved much more widespread popularity in 1949 when a much more family-friendly version of the song intended for children was recorded by Burl Ives. Oh, the buzzing of the bees and the cigarette trees, the soda water fountain, where the lemonade springs and the bluebird sings in that big rock candy mountain. Now, even though they got rid of the booze references, at least they still had cigarette trees. Now fast forward to modern times, and this is what the song has become today. In the Big Rock Candy Mountains, there's a land that's fair and bright, where the goodies grow on bushes, and you sleep out Now there's nothing wrong with making things a little family friendly, but this is just torture. But there were some other noteworthy versions of this old time hit. Even Johnny Cash was fond of the Big Rock Candy Mountain. One sunny day in the month of May, a burly bum came hiking. 
Down the shady lane by the sugar cane, a looking for his liking. As he strolled along, he sang a song of the land of milk and honey, where a bum can stay for many a day, and he don't need any money. Oh, the buzzing of the bees in the cigarette trees, the soul of water fountain, the lemonade springs where the bluebird sings on the big rock candy mountain. On the big rock candy mountain, all the cops have wooden legs, the bulldogs all have rubber teeth. And the hens lay soft-boiled eggs. The farmers' trees are full of fruit. Their barns are full of hay. Now I wanna go where there ain't no snow and the sleet don't fall and the wind don't blow and a bum can sleep all day. Now it's been recorded by many artists throughout the world, but one particularly grandiose version, recorded in 1960 by Dorsey Burnett, to date was the biggest success for the song in the post-1954 rock era, having reached number 102 on Billboard's charts. Up in the big rock candy mountain, the cops have wooden legs, the bulldogs all have rubber teeth, and the hens lay softballed eggs. The farmer's loft is a full of hay. His wife wears a satin dress. Oh, well, I am a gonna go where the wind don't blow. It don't rain, it don't snow in the big rock candy mountain. But aside from the original Harry McClintock version of Big Rock Candy Mountain. <laughs> My personal favorite has got to be this unique performance by Tex Morton in 1939. Now in the big rock candy mountains is a land that's fair and bright Where the hand does grow on bushes and you sleep out every night Where the boxcars all are empty and sun shines every day There's birds and bees and cigarette trees and lemonade springs where the bluebird sings in the big rock candy cluster of brightly colored hills just north of Marysville, Utah, near the Fish Lake National Forest, is named the Big Rock Candy Mountain. In 1928, after the song had been released, some Utah residents jokingly placed the sign at the base of the hills, labeling it such, along with the sign next to a nearby spring, proclaiming it Lemonade Springs. The Big Rock Candy Mountain Resort currently sits at the base of the hills and is a major hub on the Paiute ATV Trail. And that is the story of Big Rock Candy Mountain. I'm Jesse Edwards, and this is Our American Stories. One evening as the sun went down and the jungle fire was burning, down the track came a hobo hiking, and he said, boys, I'm not turning. I'm headed for a land that's far away beside the crystal fountains. So come with me, we'll go and see the big rock candy mountains. In the big rock candy mountains, there's a land that's fair and bright, where the handouts grow on bushes and you sleep out every night. Where the boxcars all are empty and the sun shines every day. On the birds and the bees and the cigarette trees, the lemonade springs where the bluebird sings in the big rock candy mountains. 
In the big rock candy mountains, all the cops have wooden legs. And the bulldogs all have rubber teeth, and the hens lay soft-boiled eggs. The farmer's trees are full of fruit, and the barns are full of hay. Oh, I'm bound to go where there ain't no snow, where the rain don't fall, the wind don't blow, in the big rock candy mountains. In the big rock candy mountains, you never change your socks. And the little streams of alcohol come a-trickling down the rocks. The brakemen have to tip their hats and the railroad bulls are blind. There's a lake of stew and a whiskey too. You can paddle all around them in a big canoe in the big rock candy mountains. In the big rock candy mountains, the jails are made of tin. And you can walk right out again as soon as you are in. There ain't no short-handled shovels, no axes, saws, or picks. I'm a-goin' to stay where you sleep all day, where they hung the Turk that invented work in the Big Rock Candy Mountains. I'll see you all this comin' fall in the Big Rock Candy Mountains. This is Our American Stories, and this is the story of how a Florida couple kept seven siblings, four brothers and three sisters, ages 12 to 4, together that were separated throughout four different foster homes. Sophia and Deshaun Olds, both 33, got married in 2004, and they admit that as newlyweds, they were too busy with schooling and serving in the military, both veterans who served overseas in Iraq, to think about starting a family. This is the story of how one childless married couple of 13 years became a family of nine, literally, overnight. We thought like we would never, ever get adopted, but I thought this was like a really good blessing for us. I never actually had a mom and a dad under the same roof. But it feels great. It's like they both like a half of something, like peanut butter and jelly. Hello, I'm Deshaun O's. And I'm Sophia O's. And we would like to tell you about our process, our story of adoption. We have always wanted to adopt. We've been married for about 13 years now and it had always been in our plans to adopt and to have biological children. We actually took the classes in 2006 and were preparing to adopt a child. However, we couldn't agree upon an age. So we postponed it, got busy with life, enjoying life, continuing in our careers in college, military, us traveling, we just were enjoying life. We were having a wonderful time together with family, with friends. I know a lot of people probably wonder and question why is it that they don't have biological children? It just never happened for us. In 2013, I took a pregnancy test and the test came back positive. And it was the scariest thing to me, I cried and I cried and I cried because I wasn't ready to be a mother. 
I know that being a mother is one of the most important jobs, number one in this world. And I guess I felt like I wasn't ready to do that, that I couldn't be that yet. And a couple days later, um, I miscarried. It was confirmed by the doctors and I had miscarried. And again, I felt another form of sadness because, you know, a child that we would have, we no longer would have. Even though we were early on in our pregnancy, it was it was still devastating for me. No, I hadn't felt the baby kick. I hadn't felt the baby move, but it was devastating. But again, we continued life. Also, we are very active in our local church. So we were active in, my husband is the youth pastor, children's church, ages what? Four to 12, always been a part of my life just to help out with children in the church. And I guess one thing we always did is that every time we gave our offering, we had on the back of it, um, adopted child on there. And then it was just no surprise that the story came out the day after Thanksgiving. And the day after Thanksgiving, what most people are doing is shopping. How we are shopping, and we saw the story on Facebook. These seven children who needed a home. It was home for the holidays. And one scripture just came to my mind is that in my father's house there's many rooms, and I go prepare a place for you. And in the Lord's Prayer, we do things on earth as it is in heaven. So we had a space to truly be, to open our home for seven children. And we knew that we had everything that these children needed. They needed a mother, a father. They needed stability, structure, discipline, with us having military. They needed love, they needed care. My husband being a teacher, me and being in social work, having those skills, the spiritual background, everything. We were just putting our whole hope and our whole trust and all of our, our dreams and our ambitions and our life in his hands. We were surrendering all when we decided to adopt our seven children. Yeah, and once we put our faith out there, it's amazing how God works it out. These students I've been serving at Rutherford High School, their parents came together and said, what can we do, what can we do? And they did everything from bringing furniture to build bunk beds to donate sports equipment to donate groceries. One parent is a farmer and truly just slaughtered a pig for us. So we have sausage, bacon, and everything else. And also our families, a day hasn't gone by that they haven't asked us or given to us, whether it be snacks for the children to take to school, whether it be cooking up a big pot of Llama beans, helping out, cooking food, getting the children off the bus when we both have to work, picking oranges, whatever it is, any extra that they have had, anything that they could give, whether it be $5, we have had that outpouring from our families from both sides. We have had that from complete strangers that live thousands and thousands of miles away. It has been no stress, no struggle at all. And I do believe that that goes back to us doing the will of God to help build his kingdom, to provide a home for, as the Bible calls them, orphans. You know, that is something that the Bible states we should do. Yes, in James 127, 
It said true religion is to take care of the orphans. And we all know that it is more blessed to give than to receive. If we were allowed to adopt these seven children, we would do it. We would work every day of our lives to make sure that they are cared for. And I think what's most important, too, is for them to see and to have an example of what it's like to have a father who is the head of the household, who has a strong faith and belief in God, and who can teach them, who can lead the family. And I know that they enjoy that. I know that they feel privileged and proud to know that their dad is up there teaching them. You can see the smiles on their face, and they enjoy talking about it afterwards. They ask lots of questions. Um, so that whole aspect has been wonderful to have him up front teaching our children um, about God, about the things that they should do in life to be saints, to be good children, to grow up, to be successful. Yep. And I like to just thank for my spiritual fathers because I do not have a biological father involved in my life. But my spiritual father, from my pastors to different men in my church, too, helped show me the way right there. And I could just use that to impart not only to my children, but all the children I minister to on a weekly basis. So I think it's important to know that in this story of adoption, I am not called to be a minister, to be behind a pulpit, to preach at a church, to be a pastor. But I know that this is my calling that God has placed in my life and I am embracing it. I am enjoying it. And that's why I can say that I am not stressed because it is something that we are doing that we are supposed to do. So it makes it so much easier. Does it require a lot from us? A lot of time, um, a lot of correction that we have to do, but it is also worth it. Every part of it. This is what we're supposed to do in life. These seven children are our calling to be their mother and their father. And we take it just as serious as if um, it was a pastor over a church or a CEO over a business. This is us, a manager over a team. This is us. This is what we are called to do. And we give him all the praise, the glory, the honor for it, because without him, we would not be able to do this. And we are doing it. And that is our story. And what a story it was. And thanks, Greg, for doing that. And thank you, Sophia and Deshaun Olds, for recording that. And for doing what you did, it's an inspiration. People listening who are thinking about it, well, just do it. Fill that house up with love. They immediately adopted seven children who needed a home. And one's a teacher. They didn't have the means, but they did it anyway. And look at the fruits of their love. And it was their faith, of course, the fruits of their faith. They just did it. They answered to a higher power. And by the way, NBC's Today Show, ABC News, Inside Edition, Miami Herald, Parents.com, and People, they all did this story but they somehow managed to leave the faith walk of this couple out of the story. And just a few things they said, and it was Sophia who said this, once you put your faith out there, it's amazing how God works it out. And in came the food, and in came the help from the family members, in came all that love. 
True religion is to take care of the orphans. And if more Christians in this great country did what this young couple did, my goodness, we could solve a lot of problems in our country. A lot of homeless problems, a lot of kids without parents. We'll bring these adoption stories to you because they're beautiful and hopefully they have some imitative power. That is, some of you listening may just decide to fill your home with some kids in need. This is Our American Story, Sophia and Deshaun Olds' story, and those seven kids they adopted, their stories too. with our American stories and we tell all kinds of stories here on this show from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between including your stories send them to ouramericannetwork.org that's ouramericannetwork.org they're some of our favorites this month of April is Autism Awareness Month we'll be bringing you stories of those with autism and those who care for them today we have Cheryl Mossberg bringing us the story of her son Pete Cheryl grew up in a big, active family herself that really shaped the idea of family for her. Here's Cheryl. Our lives pretty well revolved around athletics. Our family, in particular, the probably the main sport was volleyball. As soon as I was able to compete, it became a very serious thing for me. Me and my sister uh, were recruited and... You know, we we really wanted to go to the same college, or at least I wanted to go to whichever college she went to. Wound up at Auburn, Um, the two of us did. Being an athlete, and and especially being a college athlete, where, you know, you just live a very regimented life, um, and you kind of spend your life being obedient. You know, so growing up, I had my parents who who were very good about, you know, keeping the five of us in line, and then... Uh, naturally went into college and I had my college coach. Um, so I guess you could say that that's just kind of, that's sort of the type of person I was at that time, just very regimented. And then, you know, in college, I met my husband, uh, Matt, and he had a similar upbringing um, and he played baseball in college and it was a very high level. Again, another very regimented style of living. Anyway, so two college athletes getting together. <laughs> uh, we fall in love, of course. And, and then after we graduate, we're married six months later, engaged right away, summer after graduating. And then that December, we are married. And so begins the journey of marriage and soon to follow parenthood. As it happens, we did lose our first child to miscarriage. It was early. It was right around eight weeks. It was right before my first OB appointment. But having been my first pregnancy and seeing that pregnancy test being positive and, you know, having some symptoms, it was just, 
it was an indescribable feeling of loss, um, of something that I didn't see or even feel. It was very strange, and but it was tr- it was a real feeling of loss, and it, and it actually took me a year to recover. A year later, uh, we were ready again. Thankfully, I was able to get pregnant. Thank the Lord, I had a very strong pregnancy. And our first son, Jack, was born. I remember when I remember when Jack was born, just the wonder of it. It's just special. Jack was placed into my arms and it just was, oh my gosh, you know. And, and the interesting thing about parents is we naturally have this sort of vision for our children. And I can't quite describe that either. It's just you sort of plan a little bit for their lives. Uh, And it began for me. I started having these flashes of visions of the future for my child, for Jack, this, you know, one-day-old baby. There began that journey as a parent, just, you know, kind of how I wanted to sort of shape my child. Right around when Jack was two is when we became pregnant with our second child, Pete. Pete came along and it's just the same thing. It's same exact feeling, you know, here I have two, two boys and oh my gosh, you know, brothers, they're going to play catch together and they're just going to be rough and tumble together and be buddies. But then, you know, Pete was a little different. His infancy was significantly different. Jack was very healthy. He had robust health. You know, all the things that newborns are kind of expected to do, Jack did. And so it made being a new parent very easy. But Pete got his first ear infection when he was about five months old. And that rocked my world. I mean, when your baby is in pain to the point where they cannot sleep and they're uncomfortable and even holding them doesn't comfort them, it it's it's alarming. It felt like we were in the doctor's office every month with Pete. He had ear infections of the worst kind. They were constant. Finally, pediatrician thought that it was time to um, take action further than antibiotics, and he recommended going to see an ENT, and we did that. And at 12 months, Pete had his first uh, surgery. He had his ears, uh, tubes placed into his ears. Um, And up until then, I would say he was developing relatively normally in that he was interactive, very interested in his brother, smiled a lot, laughed a lot. He actually walked early, no concerns at all other than his ears. He goes into surgery. Everything is perfect. The doctor comes out, says he's great. Ear infection was, this was, you know, I know this was a good call because the infection was, was so incredibly thick that there's just no way that this would have resolved without tubes. And so I just felt relief hearing those words. But when Pete woke up from surgery, he was not the same. He woke up a different child. And at the moment, Matt and I did not realize that. We thought that he was groggy from anesthesia. And the doctor had told us that he might be quiet for a day or two just because all of a sudden your child, your one-year-old, will be able to hear. And so all the new sounds that he's going to hear would possibly affect his behavior. And it it definitely did. I don't think that it was because he could hear. First of all, he got quiet and he never made sounds again and he really stopped smiling. 
Uh, it was very odd. Again, Matt and I thought he was just focusing on the world around him, but each day passed and it never that never changed. And in fact, he began to isolate himself. This is all at the age of one. It was just wild. It was as though we lost Pete. He just went somewhere. That's, that's all I can say to describe that. It was so simple. His ear infections came back. Even with the tubes, they came back just the same month after month. So, so began another round of antibiotics. And then, of course, the ENT recommended we go ahead and re remove his adenoids. So Pete had his second surgery at 18 months. Woke up from anesthesia, all the same, quiet. Again, we had the hopes of of Pete kind of coming back to us afterwards. You know, maybe maybe this was the final solution. That was not what happened. In fact, it, it got worse. Now I began to notice the change in his diet. Right around 18 months, around the time of his second surgery, he began refusing food. And that was new. And so Matt and I are like, oh gosh, okay. He's a picky eater. Like, this is weird. He's 18 months. Usually at this age, babies are hungry. They eat what's put in front of them. And if they don't like it, they play with it and they toss it off to the side. But at the end of the day, they're going to eat because babies don't starve themselves. Pete began refusing food, like at a very unusual rate. And I thought, God, this is, this is a whole nother level of picky eater. And by the time Pete was two... He was not developing. In fact, it was the opposite. He was regressing, and he, he was disappearing further and further. That's when Matt and I realized, like, this, this is something is up. This is not normal. And we actually, um, someone had to tell us. I remember that conversation. It was I, I was, I was actually in nursing school at the time. We went to try out a daycare for Pete, the director, after the first day of trying this daycare out, the director, when I came to pick Pete up, the director uh, asked if she could, you know, have a, have a conversation with me in her office. And, and she was very gentle, but she told me that this was not going to work and that there's something going on with my son. And I knew it, but hearing someone in that position sit me down, look me in the eyes and just very candidly tell me something was wrong that was pivotal. Um, those words, uh, I, I will remember that day forever. <laughs> when you're when you're a parent and your children are young and you have plans for them and you know you kind of have a sort of parenting style in place and a focus. When that becomes apparent that things are not normal, it really turns everything upside down. It really like. It can, you know, you can describe it as wrecking your world because you realize you have no control. It was just something uh, that I never would have planned. We, we don't plan these things. And I, I, I just, looking back on it now, I mean, my son Pete, at this point, he's 10. And looking back on it, I just kind of smile and know that, yes, even though this was horrible news to hear something was wrong, I just, I know God was, had given me just what I needed as a parent and that it was his way of saying, this is not your son. He's my son and you are here to care for him and to shepherd him and to point him in the right direction. Of course, I didn't feel that at the time. So at the time, 
I didn't know what to do. It was, I felt very alone. Matt and I didn't know what to do. It was just wild. And at, at this point, we moved far, far away and we were living in Buffalo, New York. My family's in Birmingham. My husband's family's in California. We're finding out that there's something wrong with their son. We need to go get him evaluated. For Matt and I, this drew us closer to one another and also drew us closer to the Lord. But that did not mean that it was easy. We knew there was something wrong. We had been told that. Naturally, the next step is to get evaluated. A team of people came to our little apartment, evaluated Pete. They were so sweet, and they you could tell they loved what they did. As it turns out, they could not tell us that he had autism. I'm, I, I want to say at the age of two, you can't have an, a diagnosis of autism back then, but he was diagnosed severe. He had a severe deficit in all across the board of development. I mean, speech, motor skills were behind. Even though he was coordinated and could walk, it was very strange. Uh, Social skills, all of it, he scored basically as a zero. We started looking into autism and, and yes, that's I knew that that's what it was, um, even without the actual official diagnosis. That's when it became apparent, you know, between two, two and a half, we had a son with autism. When we initially found this out, of course, I think this day and age with the internet and the, the, the wealth of knowledge that's at our fingertips, you, you consult with the oracle and you begin to Google. And it is a very scary thing. My eyes were opened to the toxins that we subject ourselves to and we subject our our children to. And you can go down this wormhole when you find out that your kid has autism or or possibly other types of, of illnesses. And I went down the wormhole for a little while because as a parent, I wanted to control it and I wanted to do my part. And I, I was like, what did I do wrong? What was he exposed to? You know, it was, it was about me at that time. The next three years, I will say, from the time Pete was two to five, I call them I call them the dark years, because that is really what they kind of felt like. So I quit nursing school and dedicated 100% of my focus and my time and my energy into Pete and Jack, and I was pretty consumed. Um, I restricted his diet. He actually was diagnosed with an eating disorder from two different uh, pediatricians, and it, it it's because he has a sensory pro- he's like severe sensory processing, and um, that's part of his autism. That food he literally can't palate certain foods, and it happens to be most foods. He can really only eat very dry, bland food. So restricting his diet, he practically was starving himself. But as a parent, I was still trying to be the you know kind of you will obey, you will eat this. This is what our family eats. And I was trying to control Pete and, you know, having a kid that didn't eat right just wasn't what I, that wasn't part of what I wanted. (laughs) So sensory processing, the brain is constantly processing input. We are receiving, you know, stimuli from the world at a massive rate. There are things occurring all around us. And the brain is a very intelligent filter of that input. And it filters and it processes. So it sends information that's received 
to certain parts of the brain and it says, okay, there's noise going on, there's no danger there. And then it says, okay, this is happening off in the background or this is happening behind you, but I'm having a conversation with my friend right now, so I'm going to focus on what she's saying and put that at the front, the forefront of my of my focus and sort of the rest of the stuff is coming in, but it's being it's being filtered to other places. So Pete, that part of the brain that helps him sort of focus on one thing at a time doesn't it doesn't work right he's being bombarded by sounds and movements and people talking and even he could you know hear the hum of the lights um, in the room and all of it's coming into his head at once and it's not being able to be filtered out and that is the reason why kids with this type of issue and and oftentimes autism go off on their own and they focus on they hyper focus on things because it helps them drown the world out so for Pete that was spinning he he would go off and take an object and he'd sit in the corner of the room away from everyone and he would spin this object and that looks strange to you and me but to him it was the only way he could he could cope with the noisy world around him so this manifested in the way that he ate uh, same thing a piece of pizza to you and me looks delicious but to him when he would touch the pizza and the grease would kind of pull around his finger he would shiver his whole body would shiver and he would I remember when he was three you know we would have pizza night and bless his heart he was hungry and he wanted to eat the pizza but he would touch it and his whole body would shiver and he would just back away and he'd, he'd wipe his hand on his shirt just repeatedly over and over again. He'd say, no, thank you. 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 And just kind of panic. And then he's hungry. That's kind of how processing uh, disorders can, can manifest itself. I didn't understand autism and I didn't understand the way his brain was working at the time. I just saw my son behaving strange and I knew that it was a part of this autism thing. But for me at that time, I still viewed my children as little beings that were supposed to behave. We just couldn't control him. Um, we didn't know what to do. That's kind of what I focused on as a parent at that time was like, I've got to get rid of this. I have to fix this because I can't, this is not working for us. Like, and how selfish, I mean, what a, what a selfish outlook as a parent to have. And meanwhile, my son is suffering. Like I didn't realize what the world was to him because he had severe sensory processing disorders. And among other things, I was so concerned about how's he gonna fit in with his family, you know? When you're parenting a two to three-year-old, you have your, your natural challenges because they're figuring out how to communicate, how to handle being told no, how to handle sharing and all the normal challenges of two and three-year-old. But you throw autism in there and it's like a whole nother level um, because, you know, Pete, at this point, he is not concerned with being obedient. He's not concerned with playing with his brother. He has his own set of issues going on in his brain that I actually was not aware of at the time. But it looked like tantrum after tantrum after tantrum after tantrum. We were maxed out. We didn't want any more children, even though I deep down really did. Didn't know how that would work. Well, 
we had a surprise pregnancy and along came Roy. And during that third pregnancy, you know, we were up to our eyeballs with a three-year-old autistic boy that, you know, the thought of having another one was just blowing both of our minds. I secretly deep down was like excited about it, even though I was terrified. So fear sets in, is my third child going to be typical or is he going to be autistic? Because the statistics are when you have one with autism, the chances of the, the following child being autistic is one in five, 20% chance that they would be autistic as well. Roy came along. He was wonderful. He was just what I needed. Oh my gosh, the Lord gave me just what I needed. And as it turns out, Pete, my, my sweet autistic son, is sandwiched between two typical brothers who both just love him. So Pete is just surrounded by just what he needs. By the time Pete's in kindergarten, Matt gets jo a job offer in Oxford, Mississippi, and that brings us back here to Oxford. And moving with an autistic child is is a whole nother is a whole nother ball game. Um, it's hard for kids, you know, change and everything. But of course, for for Pete, it was pretty devastating. And then eventually, Pete settled into his new routine. And you know, I began to realize when Pete would misbehave or he would act in ways that were completely not normal. It exposed things about me that I was not aware of. It made me realize that my children were a point of pride for me. Anytime you have something that is a point of pride for you, you know, that, that is what you value. That just tells you what is in your heart and what you care about. You know, when we go places and my son Jack is so polite to people and they comment on how Gosh, your son is so intelligent and so polite and makes great eye contact and so well behaved. Look at him sitting there and I well up as a parent. I go, yes, because I have worked so hard. <laughs> Having Pete made me realize was that my children, I felt as though they glorified me and that exposed how selfish I was as a parent. I mean, to be honest, that viewpoint basically says my children were placed on this earth to serve me to be a parent and not care what the world around you thinks is absolutely freeing and there's no way you can do that if you care so much about behavior and appearances there's just no way and here i have this son who is so sweet but so daggum bad <laughs> that at least he appeared to be bad that's what it looked like from the outside world. You know, to me, I knew what it was. He had struggles, and but I had so many humbling experiences. Pete being 10, he still does these things that just check me. They check my heart. I say it's like the Lord's way of being like, Cheryl, do you, do you really not care anymore? Or like, do you have a little, are you starting to get a little prideful about how good Pete is now? And so Pete will do something that just kind of like, takes my breath away a little like oh my god what did he just do I'll give you an example just a few months ago my sister came to visit with her uh, boys my nephews and and all our boys are the same age all is well the boys are eating they're having a good time everyone eats we're finished we're leaving 
this nice man walks up to me as we're leaving. He goes, excuse me, is this your son? And he points to Pete and I said, yes. He goes, well, he just came over to my table and he coughed and sneezed into my bowl of soup. And I looked over at his table and there were three other women sitting there and they were staring at me and not in an approving manner. And one of them in particular shook her head and just kind of gave me this look like, your son did that. Like, look what your son did. And I felt, I did, I felt shame. I felt embarrassed for a moment. And then I apologized profusely to him. I said, I am so sorry. He does things I can't really explain. And all I can do is, is apologize. And I called Pete over. I said, Pete, you sneezed in his food. And that's very rude. <laughs> People don't appreciate that. And he looked at that man in his eyes. He said, I'm sorry. And the man, I could tell it melted him completely. And he just was like, it's okay. And I go, can I please buy you another bowl of soup? And of course, at that time, I was, I was, I was teary-eyed. And it made me still realize how I still do care. So it is a constant battle. It's something every day I have to just like let it go. And when Pete does something like that, like I don't want to have shame when I look at my son. I don't. I don't want something that he does to, I don't want to, to look on him and go, oh, you caused me shame. That's basically what I'm doing when I do that. And the man knew, he just knew. I didn't have to say anything. He saw the tears in my eyes and that, that I felt terribly that my son had ruined his lunch. And he, he, he shook Pete's hand and he said, it's, it's totally okay. Don't, don't worry about it. And it was, it was really sweet. But I didn't worry about those little ladies at the table. I knew they disapproved, and I let them disapprove because it doesn't matter. Like, I love my son, and I love everything he does, and I wasn't going to go over there and explain to those ladies. I just let it go because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what they think. I apologized to the man, and he accepted our apology. And, and um, that's just kind of how life is with Pete. You know, these things happen and it's just kind of like, oh, and I get this little embarrassment. And then I remember, oh, I'm not embarrassed of my son. I love my son. This is who he is. And he's going to probably make some people angry or <laughs> offend people from time to time. But I know where his heart is. And his heart, that's not where his heart is. He just can't control his impulses sometimes. So fast forward to a tiny bit to last summer he was nine we love going to the beach my husband grew up in southern california i just like the beach because the beach is amazing and that's a vacation that works for our family and it typically it's very good place to go with him because he loves the sand it it's um the ocean and that that sound of the ocean is probably very calming for him because it drowns out all the other noises that could be happening, you know, in, in life and in a city. But for some reason, our most recent trip to the beach was actually not pleasant. Um, and Pete was not into the sand and he was not into the ocean, which really rocked our vacation. It made it really challenging because usually we go and the boys are happy all day long and they're swimming. All three of my boys can swim. But Pete is demanding to go have a shower about every hour. We have to take him up to the condo to let him wash off the sand. And then we sort of were like, okay, this is weird. The place that we were was very family oriented. We kind of made friends with the families 
that were, you know, at the beach at the same time with us in the, in the condos next door. And, and there was the sweetest family that was staying uh, just below us. And of course we set up, we set up shop next to them each day at the beach and their kids were sweet and they got along and I could tell they cared about our boys and they weren't kind of, you know, Pete's sort of strange behaviors didn't bother them. They were just really mellow and the wife approached me one day and she was very kind and gentle in her approach and she said, I couldn't help but notice your son having trouble with the sand and, and the ocean and that and she said, If you don't mind, I'd like to tell you about something that an experience that we went through with our son and she pointed to her you know, her son at the at this time he was I would say probably five and he was there and I've I've seen him for a day or two, totally normal kid and totally typical child and she said he presented with behaviors of autism when he was two and she said and someone we came across this course it's called brain highways it's a course that's sort of like a type of therapy she goes do you mind if I tell you about it I said absolutely and I go okay I'd love to hear about it there's a way to test the development of your brain and to know what parts of it are working properly and what parts aren't working. She said, would you like to test Pete and see, see what his brain looks like? I said, yes. And so we go into her condo and she, she gets Pete to do some funny movements. And, you know, of course, Pete's funny and everything he does. And she was able to sort of tell me that what that meant was that these two certain parts of his brain were severely underdeveloped. And she kind of explained all of that and, said, this class, actually, the, the brain is elastic. And there are movements and exercises that you can do to light those parts of the brain that aren't firing. You can light them up again. And it'll change your brain and the way it works. I was like, I love that. I will totally look into this. Thank you. So we parted ways and we each go back to our normal lives and this Brain Highways course is just kind of in the back of my brain, like there constantly. Matt, you know, I I tell Matt, I'm like, babe, I I really want to look into this. So I go on the website and I start looking and it is just what the woman said it was. It was just this course that you take and you sign up and you do these exercises and movements and, you know, it's like a 12 week course and um, then there's, once you complete that 12 weeks, Supposedly, this particular part of your brain becomes developed. Then you move on and you do another course and it develops another part of your brain. We're just like, this is so interesting. And I mean, is this too good to be true? I don't know, but it can't hurt. And it was something that we could afford to do. And I stay at home. So I'm, I have the means and the resources to implement this course. That was in the summer when we were introduced to it. We signed up and began it, the course in the fall. At this point, Pete is nonverbal. He can speak in the sense that he can tell me that he's hungry. He would say that he wanted to go to bed, just basically express his very basic needs, and that was it. He, as a as a not as a nine-year-old, couldn't tell me anything beyond he couldn't tell me about his emotions, what he was feeling. Couldn't tell me about his day, what he did at school. We began this course, and after the first day, and what really what it involved is is things going back 
is rewinding to infancy and doing movements that babies do. Every baby in the world that's born does these movements. They get on their bellies and they do what's called creeping. And then they, when they're sleeping, they have these particular movements while they're sleeping. Then they begin to learn to crawl and they learn to crawl a certain way. And then they begin to learn to walk. And as it turns out, all of those movements that all babies do, unless you know they have some handicap, all those movements are developing the lower parts of the brain. Once I realized that, that that's what we're doing, this course is all about going back and doing those movements. I'm like, man, Pete was sick the first year and a half of his life. He did not sleep like Jack slept. He was not on the floor. He walked early, so he, he totally skipped the whole crawling thing. And he never had the opportunity to make those movements that normal babies do. I mean, it made me realize holy cow, like that might not be the cause for his autism, but if we can light these, you know, kind of like light these neurons back up, fire this part of his brain, maybe this will help him. Well, after the first course, Pete and I got on our bellies and we were scooting across the floor, something that seemed totally benign, like what is this going to do? We did that for 30 minutes along with these other kind of like funny movements that you do when you're sleeping. And he hopped up when we were done. The timer went off. I was like, oh, we're done. Great job, Pete. We just finished your first, you know, Brain Highways class. And he hopped up and he goes, mom, I want to go outside. And I go, Matt and I look at each other because we're both in the kitchen. We're like, we look back at Pete and we go, okay. And he runs to the door and then he grabs the handle on the door and then he runs back in and goes to the pantry. He goes, can I get a snack first? <laughs> and I mean... He has never talked this way. He has never done this. That's, that's two sentences, and it was totally natural. And, and Matt and I, again, we kind of look at him. We're like, sure. And he goes in there. He get, grabs a snack. He goes, okay, thanks. And then he goes outside, and I was like, our jaws were dropped open. Words came out of our son's mouth, and it was like real time, and it was natural. And I just like, my eyes filled with water. I had heard my son like speak something that was on his mind came out of his mouth. And it was, it was amazing. It was amazing. And, oh my gosh, the feeling. I just, I went back to when I met the woman. I'm like, she was an angel. And this is going to do something for Pete. And, you know, we continued doing the course and it's like unlocking his voice. And, you know, essentially, you know, kids like Pete that have severely underdeveloped portions of the brain come to find out all this, all these things I'm finding out about the brain and, and how powerful it is. Talking is a more complicated action and more neuron firings to talk than it is to actually walk. So in order for Pete to be able to talk, his brain has to be working properly, and it's not. So that's, in a nutshell, why he's he's... He's so quiet is because his brain is occupied with other things and it just doesn't have the capacity to like handle and coordinate and to get those thoughts out. Well, the, the more we're, the more we're crawling on our bellies on the floor and doing these creeping and crawling and these like things that we did, that we all did when we were children and infants, it literally is freeing up his brain and enabling, enabling him to be able to talk. It is still the same though. He is still autistic and we still get these reminders each and every day that we are not in control and that um, our children are not placed on this earth for our glory. 
that has been instilled in me forever. But I'm so thankful for the changes and I'm thankful for his voice and and any kind of relief from autism is is very welcomed. But that lesson for, for Matt and I as parents is is permanently instilled. I am here just to shepherd my child and and to gent- gently guide them and to love them unconditionally. And they, you know, but that's my job. And it's so much more fulfilling and I'm able to do it so much better because I'm not focused on behavior and what my children look like and how they make me appear as a parent. Because at the end of the day, it's not about me. It's not about my husband. And that's just been the biggest lesson that Pete has taught us. And you've been listening to Cheryl Mossberg, and thanks to Faith for the great work in finding this story and bringing it to life. And thanks to Cheryl for just sharing everything. My goodness, there was nothing she left out. An honest voice is as true a voice as we've heard on this show about something hard and something hard about her own self, having to share with everybody that she was selfish. And so many of us as parents can be because we're people, we're human. Our children are not placed on this earth for our glory. I am here to just shepherd my children and gently guide them and love them unconditionally. It's not about me. No truer beautiful words have been said on this show. Cheryl Mossberg's story, her beautiful husband, Matt, college sweethearts, Jack, Pete, and Roy, their stories all in a way because they're all enriched by Pete's presence here on Our American Stories. Thank you.